Dear Governor is a production of iHeartMedia and Three Mutts Media. Dear Governor Newsom. Dear Mr. Governor Newsom. This is an open letter to Governor Gavin Newsom. Dear Governor Newsom. To share in the sorrow and join in solidarity with the families of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and so many more families of color who have lost loved ones for absolutely no reason. To show respect for the hundreds of thousands of courageous individuals across the country protesting the injustices and brutality. And to use our voices to echo the self-evident truth that Black lives matter. This week, Dear Governor is participating in the podcast Blackout. According to the Death Penalty Information Center, since 1973, 168 men and women who served on death row have been exonerated. Capital punishment is the ultimate racist machine. According to Capital Punishment Project at the ACLU, the odds of receiving a death sentence are nearly four times higher if the defendant is black than if he or she is white. And the recent spate of fatal shootings and beatings of weaponless black men, with little or no repercussions for the officers involved, shines a white-hot spotlight on the racist nature of the criminal justice system at large. Jarvis and I talked on the phone yesterday to get caught up on the social unrest that's running rampant across the country and to hear what he is hearing and seeing on the inside of death row. All right, you there? Yeah. Okay, good. Okay, Jarvis, I want to jump forward to George Floyd. I mean, we'll, we'll talk okay. about others, but since George is the ultimate tipping point for the nation, what did you think when you saw the videotape of the cop on, on his neck? That was sort of like, you know, a crime that happened the week before or two months before or three months before. I mean, these are a consistent pattern of crimes where black men have been shown to the world as being killed by a white officer or by the police, cops, whatever you want to call it. And so I thought this was another case that just blew your mind. And at the moment I looked at that, he had said, I couldn't breathe. I can't breathe. It was at that time that I actually turned to it. And I seen this cop's hand in his, in his pants. I could see this really not able to breathe. So in my mind, I'm thinking, I know what that feels like. You guys have to understand, he's really serious about this. He can't breathe. He would try to move his neck a little bit, and then he would say, I can't breathe. What do you mean you know what that feels like? Well, he kind of like tried to figure out how to get some air into his body. You can see it. I saw it. You know, I don't care if no one else saw it. I saw it. And he said it again. I can't breathe. And I felt like I was in his place. I understand what that felt like, being a black man and seeing what I was looking at. Uh, You couldn't watch it. I couldn't watch it. And I felt like I was walking away from that. He's dead. Mm-hmm. And I thought about Rodney King, but Rodney King survived. I thought about it because the world was looking at it. So in my mind, I said, this is this is bad. It's going to blow up. It's, this is not going to be good. This is an execution that they usually do at night with men and women on death row. Mm-hmm. But now they just did it in the middle of the street. 
and it's public. Then I started thinking of all the scenarios I would have done. I would have probably ran over there and kicked the cop off him or just things you would want to do. Mm-hmm. Have you talked about the situation with George to any fellow inmates? Like, is there discussion, active discussion about it in prison? Well, you know, like everybody, that discussion is still ongoing. You know, every time we turn our TVs on, our radios on, we hear about George Floyd being commemorated here or riots over here in this part of the country or that part of the country. So it's a discussion. It's, 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 everyone's talking about this. You know, everyone's angry about it. Everybody who wanted to prove a point is using this incident to prove that point. Have you found it, um, it's, it's heartening to see so many different races coming together to march for Black Lives Matter? Is it the same way in the prison? You, do you see white guys outraged by this as well? That's the interesting thing about all this. You see it on television and you see it on San Quentin's death row. That is what trips me out. That's interesting right there, of course. There is just as many white men on death row who's outraged by it as anyone else. I mean, it's so vivid, and it and it, it shocks your senses. These are the kind of things I think about, and I wonder what lit this on fire the way it flames. You know, it was like, how did it so many people from all ethnic backgrounds and all social ladders can be as outraged as this one incident. Mm-hmm. And you hear on television all the time, it's because, you know, it was a tipping point. This lit the few, but it lit it for everybody. How do you yeah. think it's going to um, not end, play but... Itself out? Yeah. Play itself out? Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. This is history being made. This is history. This is, you know, this is a whole nation of all ethnic backgrounds, all everywhere. And, I mean, I even heard on television mothers of teenage kids saying, I'm not going to ever put my son in the military, United States military. That's out, just by Trump's threat. When you see preachers and churches are out there, you know, conservative churches are out there. It's just, I've never seen this, you know. I've never seen this, and I don't know how it's going to play out. You have a president that done lost his damn mind. And I know that this this should not be a topic of politics, but it is. He done lost his damn mind. And that's just the way I see it. And he makes President Bush, Reagan, the other Bush, looks like saints compared to him. And I just wish that... I knew where this was going to go, but because of President Donald Trump, I have no idea. I have let, no let idea. Let me ask you this. You know, I was just talking about this with my mother, and, and she was saying that obviously the looting has to stop at some point because small businesses and a lot of minority owned businesses are being destroyed. But what do you think about the looting? Is, is that a necessary step in order to really get the world to? to open their eyes, or is that a bridge too far? Well, a couple of days ago, or even I think it was last night, they said that cops shot into a supermarket 
or some type of business at people looting, you know, and made me think, okay, what about the looting thing? You know, what's going on with that? You know, what if I had a business or two business and I saw all these white guys with SWAT stickers coming down because somebody got shot and now they want to just blow my building up. But God forbid those kinds of things. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had a friend I was talking to the other day. We were talking about this. And I said to this friend, I said, you know what? If all these racial backgrounds were out there with the protesters, it would be someone who would say, you know what, man? That's that's my uncle's business right there. You know, that, that Asian person would say, that's my uncle's business. Or some person from another country would say, my parents go here all the time. But when you are so separated from society and you have a business out there, you really don't matter. It doesn't matter no more. I'm upset. I'm mad. It doesn't matter no more. But I also think that there is a lot of people in those groups that's wanting to see fires. Why? Oh, they want to see fires. You know, they they want 4th of July to be that night, tomorrow. I think it's agitation. I think it has everything to do with agitating the problem. Instigating, agitating, organizing this mass way of exerting or bringing attention to what's going on. Based on righteous anger. I don't know if it's righteous anger. I think it's anger that, that cannot be controlled at that moment. It cannot be controlled. This is not just America. This is wherever I've seen uh, injustice. You know, cities go up, go up in flames. Just one of those things that is not unique to American society. It happens. I don't know the source of why all that happens. I just know that it's not exclusive American, that people get mad and they burn up someone else's business or tip over cars or set fires to cop cars. And this is not unique. Do, uh, but I know, it's, I know it's agitated. I know it's by agitation. Has the uh, Black Lives Matter movement penetrated the prison? Do you guys talk about that movement? This is what I'm hearing when I hear them speak. And they speak to me, too. I just want to make sure that you know that. Mm -hmm. uh, what I'm hearing them say is that, cut it out. You're killing us, and we're not being seen being killed. Mm -hmm. uh, our lives matter. So we know everyone else's lives matter, but this is straight-out murder here. And my brother's being killed because of that, and my sister's being killed for that. That is not about everyone dying. That's about black people dying and black people's experience with cops. They're being killed. That's what I'm hearing. But in my overall view of this, it's almost like, for me, it's almost saying that somehow you're going to have to make a bridge to include other people, either as poor people or whatever. It has to have this bridge. And I remember, now that I'm thinking about it, when Mark, Dr. King, he walked across the bridge, and he had more than just black folk walking with him. Mm -hmm. And that made a difference. You know, if it would have been all black folks crossing that bridge, I don't think it would have had the same effect. You but know, that's happening now. Uh, that's what blows me away. That is what I'm saying. I mean, literally, I'm seeing these white young kids getting shot with tear gas. I'm seeing them being arrested. I'm seeing them laying out in the streets, sacrificing their bodies. 
and they're saying in, 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 in very clear terms, Black Lives Matter. They're saying it. For many of them, I believe they're saying it because that's why they're there. Black Lives Matter because that could have been my brother. That could have been my sister. And I don't know if it's not going to be my brother and if it's not going to be my sister. Black Lives Matter because we are the ones that have to say something. We are the ones who have to bring to light what's going on about young men, black men, black people being killed. It has to matter, and somebody needs to know that it matters. So that's what I think about that. In lieu of our regularly scheduled programming, Jarvis and I will be reading the names and stories of the men of color who had been sentenced to death and since 2010 were subsequently found to be innocent and released from jail. Our regularly scheduled show will drop first thing tomorrow, in which Jarvis will talk more about his very personal opinion on capital punishment and what it feels like from the inside. In addition, we'll hear from esteemed Buddhist teacher and best-selling author Pema Chodron. The criteria for inclusion in the Death Penalty Information Center list are threefold. After being sentenced to death, he or she must have A. Been acquitted of all charges related to the crime that placed them on death row, or B had all charges related to the crime that placed them on death row dismissed by prosecution or the courts, or C, been granted a complete pardon based on the evidence of innocence. Anthony Graves became a free man in 2010. Anthony was convicted in 1994 of assisting Robert Carter in multiple murders. Not only did the prosecutors elicit false statements and withhold testimony that could have influenced the jurors, Carter himself testified that he lied about Anthony's participation in the crimes. Sixteen years were lost. Reginald Griffith became a free man in 2013. Reginald had been sentenced to death for the murder of a fellow inmate in 1983, but not unlike Jarvis's case, it was found out that not only did the state withhold critical evidence, but his conviction relied on the testimony of two jailhouse snitches who received benefits for their testimony, and his two co-defendants said Reginald was not involved. He lost 30 years in prison. Brothers, Henry McCollum and Leon Brown became free men in 2014. Henry was 19 and Leon was 15 when they confessed to the rape and murder of an 11-year-old girl. Both men are intellectually disabled and said they were unaware they were signing a confession. They maintained their innocence from the start. They were freed after 30 years based on DNA evidence. Brothers Wiley and Ronnie Brickman and Ricky Jackson became free in 2014. They were all convicted of a 1975 murder based on the testimony of a 12-year-old boy who later recanted his testimony and who now has said he did not witness the crime at all. Several people confirmed that the boy was on the school bus at the time of the crime. No other evidence linked the men to the murder. Almost 40 years lost. Anthony Ray Hinton became free man in 2015. Anthony was convicted of the 1985 murders of two fast food restaurant managers based on the testimony of a state forensic examiner that the bullets in the two murders came from the gun found in Hinton's house. The prosecutor, who had a documented history of racial bias, said he could tell Hinton was guilty and evil just by looking at him. In 2014, the U.S. Supreme Court unanimously held that Hinton had been provided substandard representation and returned his case to the state's courts. New experts said they could not link the bullets to Hinton's gun, and he was released after nearly 30 years. 
Alfred Brown became a free man in 2014. Alfred had been wrongfully convicted and sentenced to death in 2005 for the murders of a Houston police officer and a store clerk during a robbery. Despite the fact there was no physical evidence tying him to the crime, and he said he had been at his girlfriend's home at the time of the murder. Alfred's girlfriend corroborated his alibi, but reversed her testimony after being badgered by the grand jury foreman and jailed for seven weeks under threat of perjury. The court overturned Brown's conviction because prosecutors withheld a phone record that supported Brown's alibi and said that the phone record had been inadvertently misplaced. Isaiah McCoy became a free man in 2017. Isaiah had been convicted and sentenced to death in 2012, despite the fact that there was no physical evidence linking Isaiah to the murder and that two alleged accomplices had given contradictory testimony. The court overturned his conviction in 2015 as a result of prosecutorial misconduct, in which the trial prosecutor belittled him in front of the jury for choosing to represent himself, made intimidating comments during a break in proceedings, then lied to the judge about having made those comments. Rodriguez Crawford became a free man in 2017. Rodriguez had been sentenced to death in 2012 on charges he suffocated his one-year-old son, despite the fact that the autopsy results showed pervasive bronchopneumonia in the baby's lungs and sepsis in his blood. The prosecuting attorney, Dale Cox, had unconstitutionally struck black jurors on the basis of race and wrote an internal memo in 2014 stating that Rodriguez, quote, deserves as much physical suffering as it is humanly possible to endure before he dies. New evidence proved the baby died of natural causes. Ralph Daniel Wright Jr. became a free man in 2017. Sentenced in 2014, the court unanimously vacated Ralph's convictions for the murders of his ex-girlfriend and their son, ruling that the, quote, purely circumstantial evidence against him was insufficient to convict. The concurring opinion held that, quote, no rational trier of fact could have found beyond a reasonable doubt that Wright was the killer. Gabriel Falachi became a free man in 2017. A disgraced Chicago detective told bald-faced lies under oath when he testified to having no memory of interrogating Gabriel and denied having beaten false confessions out of him for two 1998 stabbing deaths. No physical or biological evidence linked Gabriel to the murder, and he was convicted upon coerced confessions, deprived of sleep, and given little food or drink until he falsely implicated himself. Almost 20 years lost. Vincente Benavides became a free man in 2018. Vincente was wrongly convicted and sentenced to death in 1993 on charges that he had raped anally sodomized, and murdered his girlfriend's 21-month daughter. The California Supreme Court had granted the former farm worker a new trial, calling his convictions a product of extensive, pervasive, impactful, and false forensic testimony. The court concluded the girl had never been sexually assaulted and may actually have died from being hit by a car. He lost 25 years behind bars. Clemente Javier Aguirre became a free man in 2018. With newly discovered confessions and DNA evidence pointing to the prosecution's chief witness as the actual killer, prosecutors dropped all charges against Clemente, convicted and sentenced to death in 2006 of the murder of two neighbors. Twelve years lost. Clifford William Jr. became a free man in 2019. 
Clifford and his nephew were wrongfully convicted of murder, and he was sentenced to death. Forty-two years later, he was exonerated. Defense counsel ignored 40 alibi witnesses whom Clifford had indicated would be able to testify that he'd been next door at the birthday party at the time of the shooting. The defense presented no witnesses. Prosecutors eventually dismissed all charges after they found, quote, no credible evidence of guilt and credible evidence of innocence. Charles Ray Fence became a free man just last year. He was convicted and sentenced to death in 1976 based on false forensic testimony and eyewitness identification manipulated by police misconduct. Three alibi witnesses testified that Charles had been playing poker with them at the time of the shooting. Several witnesses for the prosecution later indicated that they had been pressured into providing false testimony implicating Finch. On January 25, 2019, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit found Finch actually innocent of the murder. And in May of last year, the federal district court ordered the 81-year-old to be released. 44 years lost. Paul Brownie became a free man this year. He was convicted and sentenced to death in 1986 for the robbery and murder of a Las Vegas jeweler. Paul was represented by a trial lawyer who had been practicing criminal defense for less than one year and failed to interview the police who responded to the scene, examine the evidence against Paul, or investigate the crime. In his post-conviction appeal, defense presented evidence that the police and prosecutors had withheld evidence of a bloody footprint found at the scene that did not match his shoes or foot size, misrepresented blood evidence in the case, manipulated eyewitness testimony, and failed to disclose the benefits it offered to a key witness who may have committed the murder and framed Paul. A white witness who worked near the crime scene told police she had seen a man run by after the murder and thought it could have been Paul. But when the police asked if she could be more sure about whom she'd seen, she said, quote, no, I don't think so. No, they all look the same. And that's just what I think when I see a black person. They all look the same. Though at trial, she unhesitatingly testified that Browning was the man she had seen. In March 2019, charges were dismissed, more than 30 years lost. Black lives matter. Black and brown lives are vital and indispensable to a better union. The Death Penalty Information Center is a national nonprofit organization serving the media and the public with analysis and information on issues concerning capital punishment. To learn more about the work they do and support their cause, please visit deathpenaltyinfo.org. Today's episode was written and produced by Donna Fazari and myself, Corny Cole. Our theme song, Sentence, is compliments of the band Stick Figure from their album Set in Stone. Stu Sternbach has composed the original music. Nate DeFort did the sound design. If you'd like to learn more about Jarvis and support his cause, please visit freejarvis.org. As a reminder, Episode 5 of Dear Governor drops tomorrow morning. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Black and brown lives matter. They're so important. Give it up for black and brown. <laughs> I, I know how to agitate this situation. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do. I, I do. I can go there. I can really go there. I know you can. I have no doubt. <laughs> Good stuff.